Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. On today's podcast, we're going to try something new. Before going into our interview with the Honourable Dale Nally, Associate Minister of Natural Gas from Government of Alberta, we're going to start off with a general discussion of some of the energy security headlines making the news this week. Joining me to talk energy security around the world is our Energy Security Forum Coordinator, Joe Kalman. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing good, Kelly. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm really excited to try the, you know, a little bit different format here. So why don't you start off by giving our listeners some of the things that have happened recently that they may or may not be aware of and you and I can editorialize about. Yeah, there's a, a lot of stuff going on right now. Uh, I'm going to start uh, close to home and then we'll uh, get progressively further away as we go on. So starting off, uh, the Canadian federal government has signaled an openness to East Coast LNG export, but some major challenges remain. Yeah, like a interview. pipeline to hook the gas up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's quite a couple bit, of challenges. <laughs> it's pretty big challenges. Uh, you know, where the, where are we going to get this natural gas from? So uh, Stephen Guibault, who's the, uh, the Canadian Minister of Environment and Climate Change, he signaled that uh, Repsol's St. John LNG import facility in New Brunswick is the most likely candidate for supplying Canadian LNG to Europe in any reasonable time frame. And uh, one of the reasons he gave for this is the existence of a uh, natural gas pipeline, uh, which is the Maritimes and Northeast pipeline, which would eliminate the need for any additional uh, pipeline infrastructure. Another reason he gave is that, you know, there's already a facility there. so permitting oh, And easier. so the gas would come from New England then. Yeah, exactly. So uh, right now, there's no major pipeline running through Quebec, which could bring natural gas right to New Brunswick. So uh, this natural gas would be coming from an already very tight uh, New England gas market. Yeah, now, it, it seems like a zero-sum game. It doesn't make sense yeah. uh, to me, I, to b- both import and export LNG. Like, mm-hmm. is that not what this looks like? Yeah, the, like New England is a uh, LNG importer, and that doesn't make much sense. No, this is, um, a, 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 I think this is a wishful chimera. But the alternative is uh, to revive the uh, Sable Island offshore energy project, which is also connected to the Maritimes and Northeast pipeline. But uh, that was fully abandoned and decommissioned in November, 2020. Having and, said that, the price of natural gas today would may lead to at least the uh, expiration of, uh, of uh, you know, and I use the term ex- uh, loosely, expiration of the economics of re- recommissioning that mm-hmm. project. There's lots Absolutely. of gas there. I think you talked to Alfred Sorensen of Paraday about uh, that project. Uh, we last did. Year. People mm-hmm. could look back at the, uh, at, and we won't dwell on this, but we did a, a podcast with uh, Alfred uh, last year. And uh uh, it would be interesting to view it. Actually, it was this year to uh, re-listen to that and uh, oh. see what, what, what he has to say about it. So another uh, in the news is uh, the G7 summit. Last week's G7 summit is over and uh, wealthy countries are trying to rewire the global energy system. With, with mm-hmm. uh, very little success relative to current energy supply and demand conditions. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues they have to deal with, uh, a lot of built up stuff. So uh, one of the things is discussion over a price cap on Russian oil. The thought would be to use uh, U.S. financial secondary sanctions. So uh, barring any companies that trade in Russian oil above a certain price point from accessing uh, the U.S. financial system. And insurance situation then, too, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
the companies that provide maritime uh, shipping insurance are often, many of them are based in, in Europe. But another thing that happened at G7 Summit is uh, an increasing alarm of France's President uh, Emmanuel Macron. So uh, right now, the Libyan Gulf of Sirte oil exports, and that's about uh, 600,000 barrels think, a day. Yeah, yeah about around 600,000 barrels a day of uh, Libyan oil is exported out of there. Uh, the National Oil Company has said that uh, there might be a complete shutdown of oil exports through there. This week, maybe the situation has changed, but an increasingly volatile political situation in Libya is uh, putting a lot of doubt over those oil exports. And that oil is mainly stays in the Mediterranean. So um, it's uh, you know, Italy and Spain, I think, import that oil. Um, and, uh, you know, that could have a huge impact on European oil prices. Yeah, I think that it's important to note, Joe, that, you know, 600,000 out of 100 million barrels a day doesn't sound like very much, but it can have enormous effects on, on supply and demand economics and, and the prices of products as a, and refined products. Like it's, it's more than just uh, six tenths of 1%. Like it's absolutely, it, it, it make those kinds of changes can make a gigantic difference in the balance of markets. Yeah. So uh, the Gulf of Sirte is a big issue that uh, isn't getting enough uh, attention. Uh, what else came out of the G7? Uh, some though? other, another thing that came out of G7 is uh, so the dire oil situation in Europe, uh, the EU, uh, is now participating in a hopeful JCPOA, which is a joint comprehensive plan of action, revival of that uh, nuclear agreement between uh, Iran, uh, European countries, and the United States. The EU will be participating as an intermediary between Iran and the US because the relationship between the two countries is very bad. But isn't the International Atomic Energy Administration uh, Agency more in like that? Where, where do they fit into this discussion? Because they're the ones that have kind of tried to keep the the guardrails up about what Iran's doing about nuclear, right? Isn't that true? Yeah, absolutely. So the IAEA recently condemned Iran's decision to remove security cameras that are meant to monitor its nuclear facilities. And uh, I think they said something about how this uh, gap in, not data collection, but th this gap in being able to see what's going on could you know, completely ruin the framework of the agreement. So since we don't know what's going on right now, yeah, this uh, is a, this is a really an open question. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, geopolitics going on here. That's and the outcomes are still to come really, really. I think there was also, you know, at the end of the summit, there was a bit of realism around the uh, communique about uh, from that came out of the summit regarding energy investment in the future. Is that not, did you not see that somewhere? The G7 communique that was released right after uh, gave the green light for public investment in gas infrastructure, uh, including in developing countries, not in upstream exploration and production, but in, you know, the, the middle parts of it, you know, the uh, pipelines, export infrastructure, all that sort of stuff. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe I'm just too cynical, but it's kind of shows to me how a lot of the opposition to funding this infrastructure in the developing world was based on, you know, the security provided by cheap Russian gas. Right. And, um, you know, and that, it's, yeah, that, that's kind of a cynical. That LNG carrier has mm -hmm. sailed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it's going to be tough for them to catch up there. Uh, in other news, uh, coal is making a huge comeback. Yeah, that's all over the news these, this lately with, the, especially in the big consuming countries like China and India, 
Um, and I, it's unbelievable that, you know, all the discussion and Harry Ferry, let's get this done discussion at, at the COP26 uh, conference. And uh, here we are with the coal fleet about to be how much bigger in the next year or so? Well, um, I'm not sure about how big the, uh, the coal-fired power fleet will be, but BP's statistical review of world energy shows that demand for coal in 2021 was a full 6% higher than in 2019. All-time record pricing, is it not? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Asian coal power prices are reaching record highs of around $400 per ton. Uh, I'm not sure if that's current anymore, but we can probably expect uh, more increases in coal demand in 2022. Uh, Europe is switching a lot of their natural gas back to coal because natural gas prices are uh, going stratospheric in Europe. Uh, so they need to provide that firm dispatchable electricity in between uh, gusts of wind and uh, periods of sun. Um, so Europe will try to avoid using Russian coal, though. I think that that's part of their uh, the earlier pact of sanctions is to phase out Russian coal. So coal is probably the easiest of the three fossil fuels to replace in Europe. Well, and is this part of the reason for uh, Russia or for uh, Germany to be increasing their they're new, like they're re, re uh, commissioning existing or new coal mines. Is that not correct too? I'm not sure about the mine side of it, but they're definitely uh, turning on a lot of their uh, old coal-fired power plants. So unlike their uh, nuclear facilities, these uh, coal-fired power plants are apparently pretty easy to turn back on. <laughs> so they're switching uh, a lot of their gas-fired power back to coal. And meanwhile, though, in North America, because natural gas prices are way Status, lower here yeah, right but they're still high relative to the markets yeah yeah but relative to europe there it's very affordable uh but um since uh north america i mean the united states at least is a big coal exporter uh and they're very exposed to the high coal prices many of the utilities which switched from um burning natural gas to burning coal because of high natural gas prices are now switching back to natural gas because uh, the coal prices in the United States are getting pretty high. Well, and I'll just remind our listeners that uh, a large part of the United States exports of coal go through the big terminal in Vancouver, you know, from Wyoming and, and uh, points west in the Midwest, they, uh, that, that coal uh, export is through the port of Vancouver, up the Columbia River to Vancouver. So, yeah, it's the largest coal exporting facility in North America. Yeah. Uh, another thing in the news is um, I'm sure many people have heard about the trouble that Germany is in. So their economic model, in my opinion, is at a huge risk over these questions over natural gas supply. So for the first time since reunification, Germany has just entered a trade deficit in the last month. Wow. That's the first time in their modern history. Uh, so it's standard model of export-led economic growth sustained by cheap Russian energy may be on the way out. And it's still to be seen what exactly the impact of this will be. Um, so the German parliament discussing moves to bail out utilities and expose emergency levies on consumers in the case of severe natural gas price shock. So this may include partial nationalization or various other means of propping up their utilities. Well, yeah, because if you don't, they'll go broke. Yeah, this is a Boy, this is a, yeah, we'll have to watch this closely, Joe. Let's keep everybody apprised of this. This is, yeah, absolutely. This is a, a big concern. Yeah, and uh, Germany has a 
pretty important part of the global economy. You know, this is sort of round three, maybe of supply chain shocks to be seen what impact it has on global inflation. Um, my concern, I guess, is that while bailouts of financial firms, uh, they seem to be, you know, sort of confidence boosters for uh, people who have their money with them. So people are less likely to do a run on the banks if a financial firm gets bailed out because they know that they're going to have enough money. Uh, my worry is here that improving the liquidity of utilities doesn't create more energy. No, you know? no, it, it doesn't. Just, it just makes it so that they can spend even more money on the very limited energy that is there. It's a so, supply issue in an mm -hmm. increasingly difficult demand situation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, the energy system doesn't run on confidence. It runs on molecules and electrons. I'm really unsure if this will actually do much to help in the case that there's a well and it's really so it's so shock. frustrating from a uh, energy security perspective as we listen to these to this dialogue and the narratives that come out of these administrations globally especially and almost 100 percent, you know from the the g7 countries including canada that you know this doubling down on renewables is is just a it seems to me to be so such folly in the short term. I understand the necessity and, and uh, movement in the in decarbonization to more and more sources of low carbon emitting energy sources are zero, but it's just not probable and it's hardly possible, I believe, in the mm -hmm. next uh, several years. Yeah, and I, we, I've been seeing some. I mean, right now copper prices are dropping, so that's that's one transition metal at least that isn't constantly going up in price. But lithium prices are going up still. I think. Um, I think uh, PV, you know, like the uh, polysilicon required for uh, photovoltaic panels is also under a lot of stress, especially in China, as China's having its own recession, you know. Well, you and you know, the last couple of years, there's been a lot of hype around the fact that solar panels had become cheap and, and uh, were cheaper than other sources of energy, notwithstanding mm. the fact that it isn't dispatchable or, or does has no base mm. load understanding. But it's still, these things turn the, the dime on that as far as cost goes but having said that with high energy prices uh in the hydrocarbon space you know more and more of these things can be uh they'll continue to to grow their footprint having yeah uh, you know it, it's a yeah. there's a lot of moving parts here joe yeah let's talk about I oil mean, prices before we finish up here yeah just just one point on the on the pv front in europe is you know like considering how high natural gas prices are right now you know uh solar panels, I think, are still going to be pretty attractive there. But the problem is that, you know, if all types of energy go up in cost, it's like we can say, oh, yeah, this one has an advantage over the other, but everyone's still poor when every type of energy goes up. And Yeah, that's the, the, the overarching point that needs to be made is that everything will cost more. Exactly, and, exactly. And it, going back to your comment and your fear about what these, these, uh, policies can do to to foster and and unfortunately grow inflation it's not going to stop inflation let's just no, say that no that's um, for sure. the last point is sustained high oil prices and uncertainty uh resulting from the war is uh shaking the global economy so i'm just going to jump in there for a second joe you sure. know the the war didn't cause high oil prices <laughs> High oil prices are part of the, are, are, will continue as long as there's conflict, as there always has been. High oil prices generally follow conflict. Hmm. But the reason for high oil prices is a lack of supply in an increased demand scenario. Let's just make sure that we're clear on that. Yeah, 100% agree. You know, um, the, the stuff going on in Libya 
is not because of Russia. The, right. the fact that Angola and Nigeria can't increase their oil production is not because of Russia. There's issues of underinvestment, not only in North America and uh, you know developed countries in terms of oil and gas production. There's also underinvestment all over OPEC, and um, you know we're we're looking at some pretty significant issues here. Um, but in the you know more acute issues that are happening right now, Joe Biden has confirmed that he'll be meeting with Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler Mohammed bin Salman later this month. Uh, this is despite bad blood over the murder of Saudi American journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In the campaign trail leading up to the election, uh, Joe Biden said that he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And, um, you know... Um, yeah, that's kind of backfired. Well, regardless of the uh, morality of the whole situation, it seems as though um, the current issue where spare capacity is in Saudi Arabia and the UAE as far as well we that's another misnomer you know like the, the Saudis have said themselves that that the and the other uh statistical organizations have proven that their the, the ability for them to increase production is minimal again carry on Joe but I I think that you know th- th- nothing comes of this yeah I have some worries that I don't think there's any time that they manage to sustain the production levels that they're going to, they say they're going to get in August for more than a few weeks. Well, and the thing of it is that a lot of the other members of OPEC aren't reaching their quotas. Like they're just not, mm-hmm. like there's not exactly. enough capital going back into re to, to increase rate. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a fundamental tenant of oil yeah. and gas production yeah. that the day to, tomorrow will be less production than today. Yeah. And, and they'll be, uh, they'll be hit with the same constraints as us uh, shale production increases are going to be, exactly. hit by. you know, high prices of tubular steel, you know, like uh, shortages of labor, Maybe yeah. they won't have the same issues with shortages of labor, but uh, well, and I'm just going to put a plug in for the, for the Canadian oil sands here. It's longer term reserves produced at a at, the, at a constant rate for a long time, and I think that there's a there's a bird's nest on the ground here for Canadian heavy oil and oil sands. I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. You know, I I recently over the weekend, Joe, I saw this this headline that J.P. Morgan suggested that oil could reach three hundred and eighty dollars a barrel. If, uh, you know, if the, if Russian oil was embargoed, for instance, or subject mm-hmm. to a cap, um, you know, very large crude carriers or VLCCs can carry 2.2 million barrels and are the backbone of global crude oil trade. That would mean around $800 million of capital tied up for six to eight weeks per cargo. Yep. That, that's, it's just an astronomical amount of money. Like I, how does the global financial system handle something like that? Like I, you know, go back, going back to those insurance questions and uh, boy, this is, I, I don't know. Tell like, us I, why, I tell us why JP Morgan thinks that that, that, that oil could be that price. Well, I'm sure that they have, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that oil could possibly reach this price. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun thought experiment, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I really doubt that the global financial system could handle that. But I think before that would happen, you would have such an insane level of demand destruction. There would just be a gigantic global recession. You know, demand for oil would probably drop by a few million barrels at least. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's it just an interesting, interesting idea. dialogue though, doesn't it? Yeah, that you'd have, you'd have $800 million in capital tied up in this one cargo. In one like, load. Yeah. It's, uh, that's insane. More importantly, in the, the short to medium term, uh, the refining 
suite and the mm-hmm. uh, uh, and re- refined products and the necessity to build uh, diesel fuel, gasoline, and jet are, is more under pressure than than people understand too. Joe, could you comment on that? Absolutely. Rory Johnson, who uh, who writes a commodity context newsletter, which I highly recommend, and I'd love to have him on the podcast as well sometime. We'll uh, talk about that later. Anyways, so he's traced the global refining shortage back to combination of uh, chronic issues of accelerated retirements and delayed start dates during the pandemic. Uh, so just because of a lack of capital and uh, very high costs of running these old refineries, a lot of uh, a lot of firms just decided to shut them down entirely and then delay the start dates for additional refineries. And then this is alongside acute issues, which is that uh, there's a big political fight in China over emissions from their independent teapot refineries. And so there's a uh, big question over whether or not these refineries will come back online. And so if I, if I was a company that was deciding whether or not to build a new refinery, I'd be paying a lot of attention to this fight in China about whether or not these refineries will be coming back online because there's a huge amount of capacity. I don't know exactly how much, but it would be enough to meet a lot of the uh, excess demand happening right now. But it's just the Chinese state is putting a lid on it. Uh, and then there's the other issue that there's a big pullback on Russian uh, refined products because a lot of the traditional buyers of these products have been self-sanctioning. So yeah, that's the uh, overview of uh, what's well. That's going great, on. Joe. I, I think it it, it leads a, it lends a different a little bit of a different lens to what we do here on the on the Energy Security Cube podcast. And I look forward to doing this uh, all the time and uh, bringing people up to date on what's going on. Let's go to the interview with uh, Minister of Natural Gas, uh, Dale Nelly. On today's episode, recorded June 27, 2022, we discussed the ability of Western Canada to meet pressing energy security challenges in the present and potential energy supply needs into the future. Pleased to join us today from Edmonton, Alberta, is the Honourable Dale Nelly. Dale is the Associate Minister of Natural Gas and Electricity for the Government of Alberta and the UCP MLA for the District of Morinville, St. Albert. Welcome to Energy Security Cube, Minister. Thank you, uh, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we, we're, uh, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's, let's get right after it, because I know you've been traveling extensively, and, uh, and we'll talk about some of that first. You recently attended the World Gas Conference in South Korea and visited Japan during the same trip. Can you give us some insight into what sort of conversations you were having and what do people in Asia think about the outlook for Canadian energy supplies? Well, I can tell you that uh, Asia has an insatiable appetite for Alberta energy. And, um, you know, that's, uh, we, we had some incredible conversations about all of our energy products. They, uh, you know, their refineries are retooled to accept our crude uh, and they're just waiting for the TMX to be completed. And of course, uh, they would uh, they would love to uh, to get our uh, our LNG to their uh, to Asia as well. And what they are particularly bullish on is the opportunity for clean hydrogen. And they recognize that um, Alberta is a destination for that because of our uh, 200 year supply of natural gas and the fact that we are global leaders right now in CCOS. And and so they are viewing us as a destination for clean hydrogen products, such as ammonia. Absolutely, yeah. So um, at present, Japan and South Korea are major importers of Russian LNG from the Sakhalin 2 LNG liquefaction facility. While many Western firms pulled out of Russia, Japan's Mitsui and Mitsubishi have maintained their investment in Sakhalin, likely because the supply is so crucial to Japan's energy security. 
what did Japan have to say about uh, reducing this reliance? Because I'm sure that this conversation was front and center when you were in Japan. And oh, could we yeah. could we fill some of that? They, I'm sure they feel understand that we could fill some of that gap if we had takeaway capacity. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That was our message: is that we've been saying all along that it's ESG is not just uh, environmental; it's also social and governance as well. And Alberta is a global leader in environmental and social governance when compared to other energy producing regions. So regardless of uh, where you're getting your energy or, you know, you, you should consider Alberta first and foremost for all of your energy products. However, if you're getting your energy from, from Russia, then absolutely, you should be considering Alberta first. Um, you know, the highest ESG standards, the short shipping times, uh, the fact that when you uh, import LNG from Canada, it doesn't have to go through any canals or uh, any straits. And we are a secure Western democracy. And of course, we also have the, uh, some of the cheapest uh, natural gas, and that will translate into some of the cheapest hydrogen in the world. And, and so uh, Asia, who who's, uh, has a sensational appetite already for our energy, uh, they also are recognizing that energy security is part of that equation, more so now than ever. And, and so they're absolutely uh, able to recognize that. Further into the future, some Asian energy companies, such as Itochu, Mitsubishi, Petronas, you just mentioned hydrogen, and, and yep. they've talked about that. Um, could you talk, talk further about, I know there's a, a large ammonia slash methanol project being constructed near Grand Prairie. Could you talk about their, the, the, their, uh, any discussions you had in Asia about those two products? Yeah, um, as I mentioned, Asia has an insatiable appetite for our energy, but particularly hydrogen. And, and of course, as you know, ammonia and methanol are both carriers of, uh, of clean hydrogen. And so for that reason, they are looking at um, Alberta as a, as a location for their facilities. Uh, we have seen seven uh, world-scale hydrogen facilities announced in Alberta in the last 12 months, and, and many of those are from Asia, uh, Itoshu, Petronas, uh, Mitsubishi. And, and so, uh, yeah, they, and, and not only that, we had, uh, we had other conversations with companies that have not made any public announcements, but they're also uh, interested in taking a closer look at Alberta. And, uh, and so uh, we've invited some of those companies to, uh, to come to Alberta and, and, and see for themselves the, uh, the Alberta advantage. So what are those, like, you know, Dale, it's easy for me to, because you're preaching to the choir, but can you, <laughs> yeah. could you lay out some of those advantages? And, and yeah, but, you know, this is, a, this is, this could be transcendental for Alberta investment. Oh yeah. Correct. Yeah. So, oh, absolutely. Well, first, first of all, before you even get to the energy, we have the lowest corporate taxes in Canada. We're cheaper than 44 U.S. states. We're competitive with Louisiana and Texas. We've got incentives for both petrochemical and hydrogen that allow us to outcompete the Gulf Coast. We have reduced red tape, a business-friendly environment. We have a 200-year supply of natural gas. We have an educated workforce. Um, that is uh, already um, skilled and trained as because we have uh, been been uh, developing hydrogen in Alberta for years. We are a leader in Canada. We produce more hydrogen in Alberta than anywhere else in Canada, and and we're global leaders in uh, in CCOS. And so all of those advantages combined, uh, on top of the fact that uh, our experts tell us we will have the second cheapest hydrogen in the world. So all of those reasons are reasons to come invest in Alberta. And that message landed particularly well with, uh, with Asian companies. 
So what's the, what do you think that, I know that some, some projects are underway. Are they in FID or, or feed or where, where are they? Yeah, as? FID, they're, they're, um, we, we don't have any, because as you know, the, uh, the, the, the process to get to FID, of course, is, is very intensive, but uh, we're hoping that we'll start to see the first companies get to FID next year. Oh, great. That, that's, I didn't realize there was that much activity and or potential uh, oh, yeah. build out already. So you got to be really excited about this, Dale. This could put us on another playing field as far as global energy security goes. Oh, absolutely. I've been telling people that hydrogen will never replace oil and gas, but it will be right up there alongside oil and gas in terms of the generational wealth that it can create. And it will also, of course, be a clean energy. So it will put Alberta on the forefront of uh, clean energy. And it's very exciting. It's going to be jobs for Albertans. It's going to be royalties for the province. It's nothing but good news. Yeah, you know, I think that people aren't always cognizant or understand and or aware of the fact that, you know, the whole petrochemical schematic requires giant amounts of hydrogen. And, yeah. you know, the Alberta industrial heartland is the, as you say, the center of hydrogen development mm-hmm. and usage in, in Canada. And I, so there's a, there's a wonderful future for this going forward. Oh, ab- um, absolutely. Let's talk about the United States for a bit, Dale, here. Um, low storage levels and high LNG exports have been driving natural gas prices up across the United States. While this isn't in the news as much now, it will certainly increase power prices this summer and heating costs in the winter. Is there any room for increased Canadian natural gas exports to the United States? Oh, absolutely. Our um, exports to the U.S. are already up double digits. And, and uh, certainly, we, we are in a position where we can certainly export more to the states as well. And um, we, we, as I mentioned, we have a 200-year supply based on current production levels. So um, we could certainly uh, be in a position to export more to the states. And uh, we'll, 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 we'll uh, certainly be advocating for, for that. And uh, they, they are, of course, our... Uh, our biggest customer. They're also our only uh, only customer outside of Canada. But uh, yeah, there is there is lots more potential, and uh, and and I and I won't be surprised to see exports of our natural gas continue to climb. So, is there been discussion with legislators in the United States about, you know, people? I'm sure people understand that that the two gas systems are quite integral to one another, Canada, and the United States. Lots of natural gas gets shipped into Ontario from the. Marcel or from the from northeast United States is there an oper- has there been any discussion or an opportunity here to you know it's it, it offshores our GHG emissions like we don't get credit but you know we could fill some of the void for what's going on in Asia or sorry in Europe because yeah. of the have you discussed that at, at state or federal levels with the Americans oh well those conversations are, are routinely happening uh, for sure and, and this is what this is what we're seeing already um, in, in addition to uh, companies like Tourmaline, Alberta companies like Tourmaline that are getting their gas to the Gulf Coast and then from there it's getting on to to Europe and Asia. But um, we know that uh, our gas going into the States is able to backfill some of the the American supplies that are getting to to Europe and Asia. So we have a very tightly connected natural gas environment, uh, not not just in North America, but globally as well. Yeah, I think this is part of a whole, you know, uh, Minister Savage was on a panel at the event that I was in in Washington last week. And one of the things that was talked about that she is a, a proponent of, and I've been talking about this for a decade, is a North American energy strategy. And this mm-hmm. natural gas schematic certainly fits into that, that um, uh, discussion. Did you want to oh, elaborate yeah. on that at all, Dale? Yeah, 
Well, I, we, we believe that natural gas is part of any conversation we have on, uh, on energy security. It, um, it, it plays a significant role. And uh, it's not just part of uh, a clean energy future, but it's the energy security. And, and so we've been actually seeing this for, uh, for years. And, and we, were, we were quite, um, you know, sometimes we were viewed by, um, uh, by some as, as being a little extreme in our views by saying that you should be getting your natural gas from a secure Western democracy like Alberta. Instead of getting it from autocratic dictators uh, that uh, arbitrarily invade other countries, other sovereign countries, but this is a, this is a message that it's true. It's uh, true, more true today than it has been uh, at any time uh, in our history because of uh, the uh, the war in Ukraine. So before we finish, Dale, let's talk about the, about electricity a bit, and yeah. I want it more specifically the clean energy standard. Um, is it, do you think it's realistic that Canada's electrical system could get to net zero emissions by 2035? We're, we're really uh, like, you know, we're already 60% hydro um, in the country. Um, yeah. And, you know, Alberta's got a, is going to reach its non-coal generated uh, prospect shorter term than was initially planned. But is this realistic? It's realistic for provinces like uh, BC and Manitoba that have lots of hydro. Uh, it's not realistic for jurisdictions like Alberta that rely on uh, thermal power uh, like we do to provide base load electricity. So, uh, you know, I, it, it could in theory be done, um, but it would come at great cost to ratepayers and it would come with reduced reliability. So if you're willing to pass any amount of costs onto the ratepayer and you're willing to see your, your bills double um, and you're willing to tolerate brownouts, then yes, it's doable. Um, however, from our position, we're not willing to uh, pass these costs, uh, these type of costs onto the rate pair, and we're not willing to sacrifice the reliability. So for that reason, we say, no, it's not possible. But like, like I said, there are some that will say it is, and, and it's, it's technically true through great cost increases and reduced reliability. And, and quite frankly, we think that, that Albertans do, uh, deserve better. Um, what, what we need is an Alberta approach, and the federal government doesn't realize this, we can't have a one-size-fits-all when it comes to our electricity grid. Yeah, it's as simple as that, isn't it? Like it, yeah. I, I totally agree. Um, we've got, you know, we've got precipitate wind. Um, you know, if anybody's that's listening to this show has never been in southern Alberta, it can get pretty windy, but it's not always windy. And yeah. uh, it, we have uh, three hundred days of sunshine in Alberta, but it's not always yeah. sunny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the sun in, in a lot of the lot of the year is quite low on the horizon. So as parts yeah. of the whole, as you said, all, not, not one size fits all, but all of the above discussion, these certainly are parts of the go forward plan. But when you're sitting on the, on the gas resource that we have, um, and the fact that we need uh, the intermittency is not a part of, of the go forward plan, then I, I totally agree with you. Before we finish up again, Dale, um, I, I, I saw you at a uh, virtually in a University of Ottawa positive energy program conference last week. I think it was last week before. Yeah. And you talked briefly about the challenges facing interconnections between Alberta and British Columbia for trading electricity. And I just, before we, I go for any further, I want to put a plug out for one of our fellows, uh, Dr. Monica Gattinger, the, uh, uh -huh. the head of Ottawa positive energy program at the University of Ottawa. She's a great, uh, a great advocate for the complete energy systems of Canada and uh, a wonderful person, and we we thank her for being uh, associated with CGI. Could you go over some of the uh, these obstacles and possible ways they could be overcome on a interconnection between Alberta and BC for trading electricity? 
Yeah, you know, the, the challenge is we have the only open and free market for electricity. And, and so um, when you have a market like BC that is centrally controlled and is a, a crown corporation, uh, it makes it, it's an unlevel playing field for, um, for Alberta companies. And so we have situations where, you know, BC could pull uh, from, uh, you know, from the electricity grid when electricity is cheap at night, sell it back uh, during the day when prices are higher. Um, you know, it could negatively impact generators as well. So we're not saying that we don't think there should be interties, but we just think that they should be managed properly. Um, since, since we don't have a capacity market or a centrally controlled electricity market, it's free and open. We think that if we're gonna proceed with these types of interties, they, they need to be um, managed properly. And, and in fact, um, we're seeing an expansion of the Montana intertie. Um, and, and so there are situations where it makes sense. It just needs to be methodical and, and, and pragmatic. We can't have a situation where BC starts importing all the uh, natural gas, or sorry, all the electricity from Alberta and reducing the supply that is available to Albertans, thus driving the cost up. And, and that is something that you know, needs to be managed. And, uh, and, and, and so that's why um, you know, we're not saying no to intertize, just that it must be pragmatic and, and, uh, and practical in, uh, in, in moving forward with, uh, with those types of arrangements. Well, and I, I just want to, and I, I'm going a little bit off the script here, but I think that the same challenges are maybe faced in the, in the uh, uh, build out of small modular reactors in Alberta. You know, the, um, I know we've signed an MOU with, uh, with Ontario, New Brunswick and Saskatchewan. I just noticed today, this morning that OPG, uh, Ontario Power Generation just applauded. Saskatchewan's has picked the uh, Hitachi uh, GE uh, SMR prototype for Saskatchewan. Um, can you comment at all from your portfolio on SMRs, Dale, or is that not something you'd be, you'd, you'd be? No, we, well, I mean, SMRs are technically Minister Savage's portfolio, but I can tell you that, yeah, we, uh, we support them um, and, and, and certainly see them as an option to decarbonize, but because of our open and free market, it won't be government investing in SMRs. Uh, it'll be uh, private business that does. So the applications that we see making the most sense because of the cost is uh, for the oil sands. And you know, we see that uh, there will probably be uh, applications for companies in the oil sands to use SMRs down the road to decarbonize. But um, like I said, we would support it on a market-based approach. Yeah, and, and uh, it does make you Alberta unique. And it's one of the great things about Alberta is that very point. And um, I couldn't think on a better way to end this conversation, except that we always ask our guests, Dale, if you have, do you have time to do any reading that isn't a, some, a technical or a or technical document or a brief on your next meeting? You know, I, I, it's been, it's been quite a while. It's probably been six months since I have read a, a book that wasn't for business purposes. And, and so in, in all fairness, yeah, that's the, all the reading that I do nowadays is, is briefs uh, and the like. Um, but at my next vacation, I'm looking forward to purchasing a book. And, and opening up and uh, and, and reading uh, some some fiction for sure. Yeah, you need to you need to disengage sometimes, Minister. It's just it's yeah. good for the for the uh, soul and and the and everything else. So uh, we thank you very much for coming on. This was brief and to, and to the point. The the minister's there to serve Albertans, which he's doing a great job of. And we thank you very much for your service, Dale. Um, thank you. It's uh, it's a it it is a you're a testament to great governance for the province. Thanks very much. Thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. 
You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed. Thank you.